Welcome back to the final episode of Art in the Making, a podcast produced and hosted by me, Caroline Cook, and me, Courtney McKee, this year's Conroy and Irby programming interns at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College. As you probably know by now, this podcast is about how art's made. We're tracing the history of different materials used in the creation of art through the ages and highlighting pieces in the Hood's collection that you can see for yourself. And if you've joined us before, we've traveled across millennia, yeah, looking at the earliest ancestors of our art-making techniques. Things that come from the earth, like stone, pigments, and clay. And things that require a lengthy process and a lot of chemistry, like metalwork, ceramics, and plasticine paints. Today, we're going to talk about what is potentially the most complicated mm -hmm. process yet, but also the one that's the most accessible. Something you might do every day, even if you don't think of it as art. You're probably carrying equipment around with you in your pocket. That's right. Today's episode is about photography. Caroline, what would you say if <laughs> I told you the first camera was invented in the 11th century? I would tell you that I'm probably about 800 years off in my estimation. Is that really true? No. Well, <laughs> no. But one important part of a camera was invented. Okay, you really had me going there. <laughs> in the 11th century, the Arab physicist Alhazen first made a camera obscura, mm. although the underlying concept for such an invention was known since the 4th century. Okay, I've definitely heard of those. Can you remind me what that is? So a camera obscura is a device that exploits the optical phenomena of a light wave to reflect and invert when it passes through a small opening. Okay. So for example, if you black out the windows in your room as well as any other light sources and leave only a small hole for the light to come in through your window, the scene outside will be reflected upside down on your wall, color and everything. Wait, does that mean you've just made a camera obscura out of your room? Yes, a really large scale one. <laughs> but they can also be made using boxes or tents. Although artists made use of camera obscura technology in their drawings and paintings since the 11th century as a way to trace the outside world precisely, the direct image was not really recorded. Right, because photons weren't landing on a reactive surface. Yeah, that innovation would come much later, in 1826 to be exact. Nicephore Nieps was a Frenchman who invented the very first camera. Yeah, he used a small-scale camera obscura, but instead of the light reflecting onto a wall, he placed a light-sensitive material there, specifically a pewter plate coated with bitumen, which is a material made of petroleum, a kind of asphalt. Yeah, he left the plate there for eight hours, allowing the light to hit the bitumen and harden it. And when he came back, he washed away the unhardened bitumen, and what he was left with was the very first photograph. Wow. Yeah, he called his technique heliography, which means light writing. That's so beautiful. Isn't it? I wonder what he would think of Instagram. <laughs> anyway, that first photograph itself is of the rooftops in the town of Saint-Louis-de-Varenne in the east of France. Not too exciting in itself, but it was a really crucial step in the development of photography. Why was photography so important? If you're not an artist, you probably think it was important just to be able to document things accurately. And you're right. Photography has totally changed the way we see the world. 
yeah, you know, we know what historical figures look like mm -hmm. and can see for ourselves the textures of their everyday life. That's a great gift. But if you're an artist, photography did something else. What do you mean? Well, for a long time, our art making techniques were evolving in pursuit of making an image, whether it was two dimensional or three dimensional, that was as realistic as possible. We wanted to copy life to prove that we could make something that looked just like the real thing. And with photography, now we could. Exactly. So the ripple effects of the development of photography were felt all across the world. Even if you didn't have access to a camera, a lifelike painting was beautiful and technically proficient. But soon, well, it became... Boring. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But we can thank the development of photography for all sorts of movements in the art world outside of this particular medium. If you like Impressionist art, a Van Gogh or a Monet, and their flowers full of light and wind, or if you like the Cubists like Picasso and his three musicians, or the Surrealists like Salvador Dali and his melting clocks, thank photography. Caroline, I think that might be a bit of an oversimplification. Okay, well, maybe I got a little carried away. But it is true that photography had a big impact on the rest of the art world. We'll talk about it more later. So, Courtney, what happened after that first photograph? How did we go from a camera obscura to a pewter plate to an iPhone? Well, it took a really long time. The next development was the daguerreotype, named after the guy who invented them, mm. Louis-Jacques Mondet Daguerre. While his Pierre Nieps was focused on reproducible images, Daguerre was all about efficiency. Yeah. He wanted the exposure time to shorten, which is understandable because Nieps was spending eight <laughs> hours on a single image. Yeah, so through some trial and error, Daguerre learned that if he used silver instead of pewter, an image appeared in much less time. Daguerre's image, though, wasn't permanent. That's right. So the parts of the silver that showed the image would eventually fade when they were exposed to light. Daguerre's solution to this took a few years, but by 1837, he had a system to freeze that image in place on the silver permanently. Yeah, it was a table salt solution that dissolved the unexposed silver oxide. And with that, the daguerreotype was born. Mm -hmm. The process could be as quick as half an hour. That's crazy fast when you thought it was going to take you eight hours. <laughs> yeah, but can you imagine having to hold still for half an hour when someone agrees to take your picture? You definitely couldn't get any good pictures of your cat. <laughs> Agreed. All right, so obviously things just kept getting faster. Soon, prints could be made using light-sensitive paper, which would record the positive of mm. the negative image on the silver plate. By the 1840s, the first photography studio had opened in New York City, which could produce tiny portraits. Yeah, the race to innovate had begun. Across Europe and the United States, chemists set their sights on improving the exposure and the printmaking process. And these prints were all still black and white, of course. But a new profession emerged. Sections of prints could be hand-colored to bring some life back into a portrait, maybe just the eyes and the lips. So it seems like it was basically just continuing to tweak and refine the chemistry for a long time. I think so, yeah. A further development in photography was the tintype, which peaked in popularity in the late 19th century. This technique allowed photographers to take and develop a photograph in just 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, invented in 1853 by another Frenchman named Adolphe Alexandre Martin, the tintype consists of a thin metal plate, usually made of iron, which is then covered with bitumen to turn it black. There's a surprise. 
surprising lack of tin involved in a tintype. Yeah, and a surprising abundance of Frenchmen involved in the history of <laughs> photography. Anyways, the metal plate is coated with a solution of nitrocellulose in ether or alcohol known as collodion, and then is covered in silver nitrate. Oof. This causes light-sensitive <laughs> silver salts to form on its surface. Got that? Yeah. So after the plate is exposed to light, it has to be developed quickly before the plate dries and the image fades. A developer is poured over the plate to desensitize the materials, and then the salts, which were not exposed, are washed away, leaving behind the image. The speed of the whole process was really its selling point, even if daguerreotypes gave slightly clearer images. Despite further developments in photography, there is a renewed interest in tintype photography today. Yeah, last winter term, the photographers Haley Spitzer and Will Wilson had a 10-day residency at the Hood Museum, during which they took tintype portraits of indigenous students as part of their CIPX, or Critical Indigenous Photographic Exchange Project. Yeah. This project, as a response to the highly staged portraits of Native Americans taken by Edward Curtis in the early 1900s, sought to reclaim power for indigenous people over how they're represented. That's right. Using the same medium as Curtis, whose work perpetuated stereotypes of Native Americans, Spitzer and Wilson created a powerful parallel as well as an experience for the students that they photographed. The same principles of photography that we have seen in heliography, daguerreotypes, and tintypes carried through to film photography, namely exposing light-sensitive materials to light in order to record an image. Film is no different except metal plates are replaced by thin, transparent plastic sheets. These sheets are coated in a gelatin emulsion that contains silver salts. Just like in tintypes. Exactly. Photons react with these silver salts, and the more light that hits them, the darker they become. Meaning that shadows will stay clear and a negative image is created. Right, and so to get that positive image, light is shown through the negative onto a photosensitive paper to create a black and white photograph. Color photography is more complicated, but the principles remain the same. Yeah, just to quickly explain, in color photography, three more layers are added to the film. A blue layer, a green layer, and a red layer, recording blue light, green light, and red light, respectively. As the film is processed, something called a dye coupler is added with the developer, and then the silver is removed, leaving a colored image behind. The actual procedure is very, very involved, (laughs) but that is the basis. Right. As you can probably tell, the history of photography is a scientific one, not an artistic one. Its practitioners were physicists, chemists, and inventors, not really artists per se. As such, the concept of art photography did not come naturally to many people. In fact, it's debated when photography began to be accepted as an art form. Yeah, absolutely. It took a long time for biases in the art world against photography to disappear. One advocate was Alfred Stieglitz, an American photographer born in 1864 who founded the photo secession movement in 1902 to promote photography as a fine art, a medium as capable of artistic expression as sculpture or painting. That's right. Stieglitz created his own gallery that exhibited photographs right beside paintings and sculptures, some of which included his own work. We actually have one of Stieglitz's photographs in the Hood's collection. The Dying Chestnut Tree is a black and white silver gelatin print taken in 1927. Only the top half of the tree is shown, where the trunk breaks up into the large branches. To me, in its clean, asymmetrical, vertical composition and the Mm. flat, 
gray plane of the sky, it reads like a Japanese woodblock print or ukiyo-e. Yeah. Yeah, the subject matter being a dead tree speaks even more to it being an expression of something beyond itself. In that, it's not a scientific experiment. It's not commercial. It's not photojournalism. It's, it's art. Yeah, choosing what falls inside the frame and where and how to light it. All of these are choices that really change the feel of the image. It's a deeply creative process, even when your goal is just to document reality. A lot of famous photographers proved you could do both. The one I'm thinking of is Ansel Adams. He's a great example. His photographs first became famous in the 1920s in the Sierra Club Bulletin. His photographs of the Sierra Nevada made him a household name and helped call attention to the need to protect nature and preserve parkland. Mm -hmm. It was like a kind of early photojournalism. Right, but he was also definitely an artist too. New advancements were emerging at this time that allowed artists like Adams to manipulate the tonality of the images with much more precision. For Adams, the joy was both in documenting the beautiful sights he was seeing and in creating these images of his own. Master photographers, even at the turn of the century, were already seeking to capture not just the scene itself, but the feeling that comes with it. So from these beginnings, photography came to be accepted as fine art in museums and galleries all around the world. More recently, artists have been pushing the question of what constitutes art in photography even further. In his photograph, Crackling Lake, from the Lakes and Reservoirs series, the photographer Matthew Brandt incorporated in the development process the actual geyser water from Crackling Lake in Wyoming, as seen in the photograph. Yeah, he does so by laying the print in a tub of the chemically rich geyser water and allowing it time to transform the image. Looking at the image, you can see a steaming turquoise geyser lake bordered by gravelly sand in the foreground, and trees in the background above which stretches an arc of blue sky. However, this nature scene is disrupted by these swirling, lilac-toned geometries that create a sort of psychedelic effect. Yeah. It almost looks as though the photo has suffered heat damage, mm. but in fact, this is the result of the geyser water intervention. By manipulating the image in this way, Brandt has made a unique work that cannot be replicated, mm -hmm. challenging the idea that a photograph is, by its very nature, reproducible. Yeah, what's more is that he's not only capturing light on photosensitive paper to form an image of the geyser, he's combining the geyser's light signature yeah. with its physical substance. So is it still a photograph, Caroline? Well, it's hard to say, and that's why it's a really intriguing question to consider. But important developments in the history of photography were still to come. You probably know that the camera in your phone isn't using salt solutions to transfer dark colors. Yeah, digital photography is a whole other animal, but the concept isn't actually as different from analog photography as you might think. Digital cameras first hit the consumer market in the 1990s, though some professional equipment emerged in the decades prior and the world marveled at this new technology. Yeah. The camera lens, not dissimilar from the camera obscuras that started the whole journey, mm -hmm. takes in light and processes what colors and tones it's seeing using electronic photo detectors. Right, so these guys convert the light that hits it into a unique current. For digital photography, it's all about getting the visual information into a format that a computer can process, which is going to be a unique color and tone for each and every pixel. The very first digital images captured shows you how far we've come. They're blocky and pixelated. 
the sharpness we now expect from our digital photography is achieved just by increasing the amount of information that the camera is taking in. And by 2000, the first camera phones were for sale. Now anyone can follow in the footsteps of Ansel Adams, or at least they can try. So that's photography. It's the perfect medium to end our series on, because we started with stone, which comes from the earth and is totally transformed into art, and we ended here, with a medium that transforms our everyday lives into something that we can document and preserve and use to express ourselves. Because it's become so accessible, it can capture the beauty in the mundane, but it can also capture how very not mundane (laughs) our lives actually are. That's what art does. Yeah, we promise not to get too symbolic in our discussions. Everything we've said is about the materials themselves. But those materials influence what artists say and how they say it. And we hope that you've seen how the materials that we use to make art are really the building blocks of our lives. So maybe the next time you look at a painting, you might think about what kind of paint was used. Maybe you'll pause the next time you take a photo on your phone camera and think how amazing it is that we have this technology and how the things you choose to photograph matter. But I know I'm going to look at everything differently now because all the objects in our lives came from somewhere. They're made of something, and most importantly, they're made by someone. Thank you so much for joining us. Till next time.